1: Alright, all of you Disney fans, you tuned in for another magical installment of Disney Blues, Disney On Demand. And this week, it is show number 101 for the week of February 26th, 2015. And what is so special about 101? Some may say 101 Dalmatians. Some may say, what makes this just so special with that number 101? Well, it marks our 100th guest. ...here at Disney On Demand. And to help us celebrate our 100th guest here at the show, we have none other than somebody you know as an artist, an Imagineer, a man behind such great things as Museum of the Weird, the Haunted Mansion, as well as the World's Fair, Small World, and countless others, including 101 Dalmatians. Yes, we have the Disney legend, Rolly Crump, stopping in here at the show. Rolly's going to stop in and talk with all of us about his entire career and some of those great stories that he loves to tell. And he's going to just take that trip down memory lane as our 100th guest here at the show to talk about being a Disney Imagineer, working on many of these projects, hijinks in the animation department, working on Small World, his legacy, and more. In addition, since we are taking that look back, we're going to take a look back once again at this week in Disney history as we have the D-Team here with Nathan taking that look for all of you D-Heads. And Jason, yes, our D-Team member is going to go down deep into the vault once again with another Blu-ray and DVD to add to your collection. And no Disney show would be complete without some music. And we have Paige back with a magical music review. We have news hot off the D-Wire and many other goodies. So before I kick off the show here this week, I do want to mention that Disney. Radio.com is probably sponsored by DVC-Rental.com, the official sponsor of Diz Radio. At DVC-Rental.com, you can save up to 60% off your next Walt Disney World vacation just by purchasing unused Vacation Club points from Vacation Club members and stay at the best vacation resorts like the Grand Floridian, the Polynesian, and many others and spend that money on what else? Souvenirs. Just book that trip through DVC-Rental.com, the official sponsor of Diz Radio, So, all of you D-heads, show number 101 has arrived with our 100th guest, Rolly Crump, the D-team in the horizon, news out off the D-wire, many other goodies on the horizon. I know that this is going to be a fantastic show, so if I'm being short for the intro here this week, it's because I'm excited to get things kicked off. So, let's officially kick off show number 101 for the week of February 26, 2015, and I'll be right back, all of you D-heads. <laughs>
2: Doesn't scare you, no evil thing will To see her is to take a sudden chill Cruella, Cruella de Vil. The curl of her lips,
0: the ice in her stare All innocent children had better beware She's like a spider waiting for the kill
2: Look out for Cruella de Vil. At first, you think Cruella is the devil But after time has worn away the shock You come to
0: realize You've seen her kind of eyes Watching you from underneath a rock <laughs> This vampire bat This inhuman beast She oughta be locked up And never released The world was such a
3: wholesome place until Cruella, cruella
4: de Like a spider waiting for the kill Look
0: out
2: for Cruella de Vil <laughs> At first you think Cruella is the devil But after time has worn away the shock
0: You come to realize You've seen her kind of eyes Watching you from underneath the rock This vampire bat This inhuman beast
5: she ought to be locked up and never released
2: The world was such a wholesome
4: place until Cruella, Cruella, DeVille Oh, Cruella, Cruella, Cruella,
2: DeVille Rise with pressed envelope to Davis and Kirk Right down that They say a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush but this little fellow here is worth a fortune Because we poured a fortune into creating him Now the first problem was to make a move Come on, presto, move That's it Come on, show off Rear back and show off your chest there. That's a crowd Cost a heck of a lot of money So you should live up to it <laughs> Well actually it wasn't as simple as that Just as we had to learn To make our animated cartoons talk We had to find a way To make these characters talk too how to accomplish this we created a new type of animation so new that we
6: had to invent a new name for it Uh,
7: uh, 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 audio animatronics
6: right audio animatronics this is roley crump a disney imagineer and you're listening to disney on demand
0: Let me get this straight a man in a kabuki mask attacked you with an army of miniature flying robots microbots may max tell him yes officer ah! microbots
1: yeah he was controlling them telepathically with a neurocranial transmitter come on i am not fast yeah no kidding go 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 <laughs>
0: So, Mr. Kabuki was using ESP to attack you and Balloon Man. I know it sounds crazy, kid. How about we call your parents and get them down here? What? Write your name and number down on this piece of paper and we can help. We've
1: got to catch that guy. But first, you're going to need some upgrades.
8: Ah! Uh, yes! A lunatic in a mask
0: just tried to kill us. How cool is that? I mean, it's scary, obviously, but how cool?
5: What's wrong with you? Low battery.
3: You home, sweetie? We jumped out a window. Who's that? We jumped out a window.
0: Harry, baby. Every baby Hey D heads, you're listening to Disney on Demand.
8: Wow. Wow, and now it's too bright.
0: Taking you on those magical journeys from your lifetime of Disney.
8: Carrie, Carrie McKean. It's like Carrie only with a K instead of a C and an A instead of an E. And only one R and an I instead of an I. It's
0: Disney On Demand.
8: Well, it started out like any normal sitting gig. You know, with the reassuring of the parent and all.
0: Here's your host, Jonathan Johnson.
8: I just wish I could forget the whole thing.
0: You will, kid
1: will. All right, LVD heads. So I hope you enjoyed the official kickoff for show number 101 for the week of February 26, 2015. And we have all kinds of fun, as I mentioned, because being show number 101, it marks our 100th guest here at Disney On Demand. And I am excited for that because we have none other than the Disney Imagineer, the icon, the legend. Mr. Rolly Crump stopping in here at the show. I am excited for that. We have the D-team here as we have Jason going into the vault. We have Paige with the Magical Music Review. We have Nathan taking a look back at This Week in Disney History and all kinds of news hot off the D-wire. So, without hesitating here this week, all of you D-heads, because we have so much on the horizon, and let me tell you, I do know that Rolly does like to tell his stories. I'm going to keep things rolling here. So before I do that, I do want to give you all the different ways you can stay connected here at the show. And first and foremost, you can always visit our official website at dizradio.com. That's D-I-Z-Radio.com. There you can find our full list of past shows, the complete archives, our latest news feed, and more right there on our official website at dizradio.com. That's D-I-Z-Radio.com. Com. You can also connect up with us all over the social media outlets on Facebook at facebook.com slash Disney On Demand. You can friend us on Facebook at facebook.com slash John Diz. That's J-O-N-D-I-Z. And remember, you can also join up our brand new Diz Radio, D-Wire discussion group right there on Facebook as well. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest, and more. Just search Disney Blue, B-L-U, or Diz Radio, D-I-Z Radio. And remember, you can subscribe to our latest shows right there on Stitcher Radio. And iTunes and get the latest shows right there on your device to listen to and enjoy right there on Stitcher Radio and iTunes. Just search Disney On Demand or Diz Radio, D-I-Z Radio. So all of you D-heads, with that said, let's just jump into news hot off the D-wire and how about Sunnook to open at Downtown Disney as part of the first phase of stores that's going to become part of the landing at Disney Springs. Sanook, a division of Decker's Brands, the not-so-typical footwear brand known for its love of innovation and unconventional comfort, announced the grand opening of its retail store last week at the Downtown Disney at the Walt Disney World Resort. As they have mentioned, we're thrilled to open our fifth Sanook store. And as our brand name comes from the word that means fun, I can't think of a more appropriate place to expand our retail presence than in Downtown Disney, said Jake Brenman, President of Sanuk. As he also stated, the space was designed to showcase the vast assortment of never uncomfortable footwear in an environment that captures the spirit of the brand. Now, spanning over a 1,000 square feet, the new Sanuk Footwear store in Downtown Disney blends sleek design with bright colors, custom fixtures to capture the one-of-a-kind visual shopping experience. Now, global prints and textures, including the brand's iconic poncho print, help define the aesthetic of its space and have more than 175 creatively inspired shoe styles on display for men women and children now sanook is best known for its sandals and its sandal shoe hybrids which will be predominantly highlighted in the store along with its closed toed styles as well that are gaining popularity now the location is at 1600 east buena vista drive number e on lake buena vista florida and the hours of operation are going to be from 10 a.m to 11 p.m 365 days a year Well, now I know where I'm going to go get some flip-flops next time I'm at Disney. And let's head on down to Sanook as part of the new openings that are going to be part of the Disney Springs. Now, moving aside from, like, Disney footwear, of course, and Downtown Disney, let's get into the next best thing, and how about toys? Yes, I know you didn't think I was going to say that. And how about the innovative Miles from Tomorrowland product line that is coming is helping connect Miles to the galaxy on behalf of of the Tomorrowland Transit Authority. Now, as I already mentioned, there is a variety of great toys here from Miles from Tomorrowland. I did mention it a couple of shows ago, but since the debut on Disney Junior, as they've said, we've continued to build a portfolio of unique and inspiring products that delight parents and their preschools, said Josh Silverman, executive vice president of Global Licensing for Disney Consumer Products. Now, space exploration is incredibly rich territory for innovation, and we're excited to launch a product collection that will capture kids' imaginations and. help bring them to life at home now miles from tomorrowland as i stated in show number 99 introduces the young adventurer miles calistio and his family as they help connect the galaxy on behalf of the tomorrowland transit authority and you can get many of these toys coming up this upcoming spring now, shifting here because I, you know, toys, clothing, all that kind of stuff, let's get into something for all of you females out there. And how about Pinup Girl Clothing announcing the Magic of Mary Blair collection from Pinup Couture? Yes, Pinup Clothing is pleased to announce the release of the Magic of Mary Blair collection by Pinup Couture, the spring summer 2015 line of 1950s and 60s style dresses and skirts that showcase the illustrations from artist Mary Blair, who all of us Disney fans know from many of her pieces, including the one inside of the Contemporary Resort. Now, Blair was active through the 30s all the way through the 70s, but perhaps best known for her work with the Walt Disney Studios in the 40s through the 60s, creating many immersive, playful and inventive illustrations that perfectly encapsulate the mid-century modern aesthetic in cheerful detail. Now, Pinup Girl Clothing is going to have this brand new Magic of Mary Bear collection that's going to consist of a dozen dresses, eight skirts, all with these designs available in extra small all the way through 4X. Now, the collection incorporates Blair's whimsical novelty motifs of travel such trains, planes, characters, computers, and girlish like umbrellas, butterflies, kittens, lips, and roses, and some of the art included was previously used in the 1950s for handkerchiefs and scarves manufactured for Carol Stanley Studios of New York. Now, the collection will also showcase one of Blair's personal artworks depicting a mother embracing her child. Now, these designs will be incorporated all over the border prints pinup couture designs including the flirty and famed 1960s style jenny dress which features adjustable straps gathered by a full skirt and more now as they have announced this collection is a dream come true for pinup girl clothing creative director and assistant designer who employed her own artistic talents in bringing Mary Blair's designs to life. I started my career in animation frequently, the only woman in the room, and Mary is my idol. She accomplished so much and refused to be overlooked in a male-dominant world and stands out as inspiration for all graphic designers, illustrators, innovators, and dreamers today. Now, the Mary Blair family estate is thrilled to be associated with this project, said Blair's nieces, Jean Chamberlain and Maggie Richardson. Now, this is brand new, coming out, and you are not all VD hats. We're actually going to have pinup girl couture here on the show with pinup girl clothing. She's going to stop in and talk with us about the Mary Blair collection, and you can find out more at pinupgirlclothing.com. Now, moving forward here, let's just get into something completely different. And how about Wonder Forge debuting exciting new lineups of Disney, Marvel, and Star Wars games at the New York International Toy Fair? Yes, Seattle-based Wonder Forge is a standout game aisle itself. Now, as they said, we grew up on Disney, and so it's a real pleasure to bring these beloved characters and stories to life for a whole new generation and kids, said Jacob Christman, Wonder Forge president and founder. From classic Star Wars to contemporary favorites like Doc McStuffins, our 2015 lineup offers kids and families fun new ways to engage and connect through innovative gameplay. Now, some of the 2015 game highlights from Wonder Forge is going to be Doc McStuffins, Mix It Up. Now, this is going to be a game where you can cure the mystery of boo-boo like Doc McStuffins. You use deduction to figure out what will help Lammy, Stuffy, Chili, and friends feel all better. Now, whoever collects the most bandages win. And here, you can put your problem-solving skills to test with this clever guessing game for ages 3 and up, and it's and it's going to retail for about $15 per game. Now, the Miles from Tomorrowland Rock and Rocket game itself is going to be Miles and his family are making some important deliveries, but they're running out of room on their ship. And you need to help them by stacking, shifting, and transferring objects onto the spaceship as you navigate towards planets in the solar system. Now, you got to keep the ship steady because if you upset the balance, the delivery will get lost in space. Now, once again, this is for ages 3 and up. Now, there's also going to be Miles from Tomorrowland Astro Tilt game as well, with Miles from Tomorrowland's crew. You can follow audio cues from the Tomorrowland Mission Control to maneuver the spaceship through the galaxy by tilting the tablet. Explore planets, dodge asteroids, and visit amazing supernovas with the flick of of a wrist. For extra fun, you can challenge friends and pass and play action to see who can race around the galaxy the fastest. And this is going to be for ages 4 and up. Now all these are brand new, including Star Wars, Marvel, and many other games. And you can find out more from wonderforge.com. Now if it seems like I'm going really fast here, all of you d heads, I am. Like I said, it is show 101, our 100th guest, and I am just excited to get to talk to the one and only Rolly Crump here very soon so if it seems like I'm breezing through news here this week fear not I am. You're completely correct. So, pushing right along here, let's go to HSN. Yes, the Home Shopping Network. And how about HSN to launch the Modern Princess Collection by Coco as part of the marketing collaboration with Disney for Cinderella? Yes, innovative entertainment and lifestyle retailer HSN announced this week that supermodel Coco will debut her first-ever apparel line with Modern Princess Collection by Coco in March. Now, the capsule collection, which will feature many of HSN's top designers and brands across fashion, footwear, jewelry, accessories, and home and beauty, is part of a larger assortment of merchandise inspired by Disney's all-new movie, Cinderella, coming out in March. Now, to promote the collection and the film, HSN, through a multifaceted marketing collaboration with Disney, has developed a comprehensive 360-degree marketing campaign that's going to include a 24-hour live event on March 10th and two additional primetime specials on march 11th and march 12th now this unique marketing program is a key component of hsn's entertainment integration strategy which drives engagement across all over the retail shopping platforms, including TV, digital, and mobile. As they've officially released, storytelling is the foundation of everything we do at HSN, and Cinderella is perfect storytelling to tell through unique brands and product experiences, said Bill Brand, president of HSN. We are excited to once again collaborate with Disney and can't wait to introduce this tremendous new work, from Coco and our many fantastic designers to customers this coming March. Now, Drawing inspiration from the intricate designs and beautiful sets of Disney's all-new live-action Cinderella, the Modern Princess Collection by Coco is going to feature fairy tale-influenced patterns that capture the essence of today's modern-day princess. Now, key pieces from the collection are going to include a butterfly print skirt, as well as matching sleeveless blouse, a double-diamond quilted jacket, as well as mixed media studs, and long sleeve draped gowns with embellishments in detail. No, I don't know what all this means either, D-Heads. I'm not a female. But there's a lot of great things. They're going to have contemporary skirts, blouses, jackets, and many other things from handbags and more. Now, if you want to find out more information about this and the collection that is kicking off on March 2nd, be sure to visit hsn.com and find out more on Facebook and Twitter as well. And this is going to be brand new in connection with Walt Disney's live-action Cinderella. Now, pushing right along here, all of you D-heads, let's get into something that's mobile, in your hands, and something we like to play. And how about... Disney Zoom Zoom, that's right. Casual prize game line Disney Zoom Zoom has now reached over 40 million downloads worldwide. Yes, Line Corporation, owner and operator of the free call and messaging app Line, announced that its casual puzzle game Disney Zoom Zoom is available for free on the Android and iPhone devices, surpassing over 40 million downloads worldwide as of February 10th. Yes, Disney Zoom Zoom is a puzzle game that features the popular Zoom Zoom series of stuffed toys designed after the popular Disney characters. Now, since launching in Japan on January 29th of 2014, the simple and enjoyable gameplay concept of connecting three or more zooms to game points as well as the game's use of charming and adorable Disney characters has appeared Appeal to a wide range of users. Its popularity has led to an English version. And releases in over 40 countries worldwide and regions around the world, centered in the United Kingdom and other European markets as well, including Taiwan, Thailand, and other key markets in East Asia. Now, in addition to the game's impressive domestic success, Zoom Zoom has captured a significant fan base in the United States, with download numbers and sale figures showing a steady growth trend globally around the world, with an all new record, as I stated, of over 40 million downloads as of February 10th. If you want to find out more about this, definitely check it out, play it, and let me tell you, be careful because the D team will back me up on this. It is addicting. So all of you D-heads, with that said, I'm going to keep news pretty short here. We have a lot of things on the horizon, our 101st show, our 100th guest, and more. So what I'm going to do is release the reins to the D-team. That's right, we're going to take a look back at what just happened within the Disney company with This Week in Disney History, and we also have Jason going deep into the vault with another Blu-ray and DVD to add to your collection. We also have Paige here with the Magical Music Review, looking into those magical music and the the sounds and the, the energy, the things that just bring that Disney magic to life and many other goodies on the horizon including myself stopping in with the one and only Rolly Crump, Disney Imagineer and Legend. So all of you D-heads, before I release the reins to the D-team, I do want to say that DizRadio.com is proudly sponsored by DVC-Rental.com, and at DVC-Rental.com you can save up to 60% on your next Walt Disney World vacation just by purchasing unused Vacation Club points from Vacation Club members and staying at the best Walt Disney World resorts from the Grand Floridian, the Polynesian, and many others, and saving that money and making it the most magical trip that you're going to have for your family just by booking it through dvc rental The official sponsor of Diz Radio. So LVD heads, with that said, I'm gonna release the reins to the D team. I'm gonna get a drink here, and then we're gonna press on. And the next time you hear me, I'm gonna have the one and only Disney legend, icon, and man, Rolly Crump stopping in here with me. Be right back, LVD heads, and take it away, team.
0: Spooks come out for swinging. Way happy haunts materialize and begin to vocalize. Great ghosts come out to, to
4: socialize.
0: Now don't close your eyes and don't try to hide, or a silly spook may sit by your side, shrouded in a daft disguise. Grimm reading
4: ghosts Come out to social lives
0: As the moon climbs high Or dead old trees Books arrive For the midnight spree Creepy creeps With eerie eyes Start
4: to shrink And harmonize Grimm reading ghosts Come out to social lives When you hear the nail Of a requiem bell We're ghostly with the spirits dwell Restless bones socialize.
2: to socialize our exhibit called it's a small world is a salute to the united nations children's fund a worldwide organization that is working for a better tomorrow by helping the children of today Our musical fantasy features the songs and dances of youngsters from more than 100 nations, each singing in his own native language. Now, when the current World's Fair ends, all four of our shows, the Magic Skyway, the Carousel Theater, Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln, and It's a Small World will find a permanent home at Disneyland USA. But right now, they're all being featured at the World's Fair.
9: (laughs) Hi, I'm Ryan Ritchie, director of After the Fair,
0: and you're listening to Dis Radio's Disney On Demand.
9: Hi again, heads and welcome to another installment of This Week in Disney History. I am Nathan, and ready to take you through another segment's worth of historical Disney facts and potential trivia. As always, let's begin. Starting out this week in Disney history, we have a good chunk of awards-based news trying to stay on the trend of last week's Oscar delights. We're starting out in 1908 this week when actor and Disney legend John Mills is born in, bear with me here, Felixstowe, Suffolk, England. With a career spanning seven decades, his roles included many, such as Father Robinson in the live-action film Swiss Family Robinson, and both of his daughters Juliet and Haley are actresses as well, having starred in 1961's The Parent Trap by Disney. Moving on to 1935, an Oscar is won for the Disney film The Tortoise and the Hare, at the 7th Academy Awards held in the Biltmore Hotel in Los Angeles, California. In 1939, Walt Disney received a special Oscar for his classic eighty three minute animated film Snow White and the Seven Dwarves at the 11th Academy Awards held additionally at the Biltmore Hotel in Los Angeles, California. Present at the awards ceremony, eleven year old at the time Shirley Temple presented Walt with one statuette and seven miniature statuettes for a significant screen innovation which had charmed millions and pioneered a great new entertainment field for the motion picture cartoon industry. In 1940, Disney's second animated feature, Pinocchio, which premiered early in February, is generally released in the United States. In 1951, actress Deborah Jo Ruff is born in Glendale, California, best known as Kitty from the hit TV series That 70s Show. She also has some Disney credits, including Air Buddies as the voice of Belinda and the animated movie Teacher's Pet, which was a feature film and a television series as the voice of Mrs. Helperman. In 1955, Steve Jobs, which is one of the leading figures in the computer industry, is born in San Francisco, California. Jobs who is a co-founder and CEO of Apple Computers, Jobs bought Lucasfilm's computer graphics division in the mid-1980s and turned it into Pixar Animation Studios. With his help, he is credited as executive producer of the 1995 Disney Pixar film, Toy Story. And also in 1955, comedian Gilbert Gottfried, who is the voice of Iago the Parrot from Disney's Aladdin feature, TV shows, and park attractions, such as the Enchanted Tiki Room under new management, is born in Brooklyn, New York. Moving on a few years to 1987, TV's The Wonderful World of Disney aired Parent Trap 2, starring Hayley Mills. Also in 87, here's a technology throwback for you before the times of Blu-ray and DVD. Disney's Sleeping Beauty is released on Laserdisc. In 1993, Pleasure Island hosted its third annual Mardi Gras celebration and kicked it off for two full days in Florida. Also in 93, Beauty and the Beast knocked away the competition at the 35th Grammy Awards held at the Shrine Auditorium. Some of the awards included best pop performance by a duo or group with vocal going to Beauty and the Beast which was performed by Celine Dion and Piabo Bryson. Also, Best Pop Instrument Performance is awarded to Beauty and the Beast from Richard Kaufman Conducting and the Nuremberg Symphony Orchestra. Also, Best Instrumental Composition Written for a Motion Picture or for Television is given to a composer, Alan Menken, for the Beauty and the Beast film. Best Song Written Specifically for a Motion Picture or for a Television Award is awarded to Beauty and the Beast, written by Howard Ashman and Alan Menken. Moving on to 1995, grand opening ceremonies began for Disneyland's newest attraction, Indiana Jones Adventure, Temple of the Forbidden Eye. The dark-themed Indie Ride will open officially March 3rd. Moving on to 96, Disney Online launched Disney.com, which was a website designed to promote a wide range of Disney products on the Internet. In 1997, Disney CEO Michael Eisner and Steve Jobs, who at the time was CEO of Pixar Animation Studios, announced that the Walt Disney Studios and Pixar have come to an official agreement to joint produce five movies over the next ten years. Also in 1997, Chewbacca, and none other than Princess Leia herself, actress Carrie Fisher, cut an opening ribbon with a lightsaber during the Star Tours Rededication Ceremony at Disneyland. Moving on to 2004, here's some Disney history to make you want to make a car trip right now. The Earl of Sandwich Shop officially opened at Downtown Disney Marketplace in Florida. In 2005, Clear Channel Radio launched a major promotion to help with celebrate 50 years of family fun at the Walt Disney theme parks. Over 400 Clear Channel radio stations participated in the campaign and helped by airing promotional spots, providing event details for the happiest celebration on earth. In 2006, comedic actor Don Knotts passes away at the age of 81 in Beverly Hills, California. Trekking down memory lane for him, he is best known to fans for TV's Andy Griffith Show, as the lovable Deputy Barney Fife. He was also a five-time Emmy winner. His Disney voice credits include Chicken Little as Mayor, Turkey Lurkey, and 101 Dalmatians the Series as the dog catcher. He also had many Disney live-action feature presentations, such as the Apple Dumpling Gang movie series, No, No Deposit, No Return, and Herbie Goes to Monte Carlo. Also in 2006, Disney released Lady and the Tramp on a two-disc DVD for the first time, and this commemorated the animated feature's 50th anniversary. In 2008, Brad Bird accepted an award for the Best Animated Feature for the Disney Pixar Ratatouille at the 80th Academy Awards. Unfortunately, it didn't win, but Ratatouille, Ratatouille is also nominated for Best Original Screenplay, Best Original Score, Best Sound Editing, and Best Sound Mixing. Also, Disney's live-action Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End is edged out in two categories, Best Makeup and Best Visual Effects. Composers Alan Menken and Stephen Schwartz are nominated twice in the Best Original Song category for Happy Working Song and That's How You Know, both from the Disney live-action film Disney's Enchanted. Moving on to 2009, *Wally* wins the Oscar for Best Animated Feature Film at the 81st Annual Academy Awards. In 2011, Bill Nye the Science Guy is on hand at Epcot to give presentations in the midst of the Engineers Week, which shine the spotlight on math, science, and engineering from February 21st to the 25th. And finishing out this week in Disney history, we end with something very recent. In 2015, when Big Hero 6 gives Walt Disney Pictures its second consecutive win in the Best Animated Feature category at this year's Oscars, following the footsteps of last year's Frozen. Well, D-Heads, that's all again for this week in Disney history. Hope you enjoyed as usual and learned something new that maybe you didn't know. Have a great week. See you real soon.
8: Come, my little friends, as we all sing a happy little working song. Merry little voices, clear and strong. Come and roll your sleeves up, so to speak, and pitch in Pitchin. Cleaning crud up in the kitchen as we sing. To rill a cheery tune in the tub as you scrub a stubborn mildew stain. pluck a hairball from the shower train to that gay refrain of a happy working song. We'll keep singing without fail, otherwise. Rubbing up the toilet oh how we all enjoy letting loose with a little la da dum 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 while we're emptying the vacuum up it's such fun to hum a happy working song Ooh, a happy working song oh how strange a place to be Tune to hum while you're sponging up the soapy scum. We adore each filthy tour that we determine. So, friends, even though you're vermin, we're a happy working dog. Singing as we fetch the detergent box for the smelly shirts and the stinky socks. Sing along. If you cannot sing, then hum along as we're finishing our happy. Wasn't this fun?
0: One is cute. Ten are fun. But the adventure begins with 101.
3: Oh, the puppies are here! Have you ever seen so many puppies? I'll take them all, the whole litter.
5: Never, you're not getting one. What? For the
0: first time ever,
3: want the job done tonight? Yeah, puppies. They're
0: gone! Disney's timeless classic 101 Dalmatians.
3: She's gonna make coats out of us. Sambulance!
2: Comes home on Blu-ray and digital.
3: You're after them! Come on, kids, hurry.
2: There they go. Blast them, Tim. Fire
3: one. Fire two. We needed a slip, didn't we, Dan? Just wait. You'll be sorry.
0: <laughs> and with digital HD... You can pick your favorite spot to watch.
3: This will be fun! The
0: Diamond Edition of Disney's 101 Dalmatians.
3: It'll be a sensation!
0: Unleash the fun for the first time on Blu-ray and digital, only for a limited time.
3: Oh, my siestas
7: are getting shorter and shorter. Required
9: voice identification.
7: EC82. Hey gang, it's me again, Jason. You've made it to the sweet spot here, down in the vault. I'm very glad that you made it down here during these cold winter months. First of all, let's make an apology. I know you're all sitting there warm behind the, your fires or your furnaces, which reminds me of a fireside chat that was happening an episode ago. You may have no- noticed that, that a voice was missing. Yes, that was me. It's what happens when you start organizing and preparing, and you don't hear the page upstairs from the studios to come on up. My apologies, all of you. I'm sure it would have been a blast. Actually, I know it would have been a blast. And again, I apologize. I hope to be there next time when we all get to sit together and chit chat about your favorite things, all things Disney. While I've got you here, as I said, you're in for a gem this week. We have hit episode 101, And what better way to do so than spotlighting Disney's 101 favorite things, Dalmatians. That's right. We were very fortunate to have Dalmatians come out on Blu-ray in their Diamond Edition just a few weeks ago. And as I've been going through the animated classics at home ourselves, we have actually hit that moment. So with that... I'm going to bring to you Disney's classic 101 Dalmatians. As in most Disney classics, they are all based upon a short story, a novel, or a fairy tale. And believe it or not, as I've discovered that most people do not realize, 101 Dalmatians is indeed based off of a novel, a 1956 novel by Dodie Smith called 101 Dalmatians. There was actually a sequel written to it called The Starlight Barking, which, of course, we all know what happens within the movie. Of course, our Disney animated sequel is not called that. Of course, it's Patch's uh, London Adventure. Or you can go to the second one, which would be 102 Dalmatians Puppies to the Rescue, which is more of the adaptation for the cartoon. But I digress. Let's get back to the main story. London is a magical place. A little rainy at times, but magical nonetheless. And Pongo feels it's time that his man pet needs to find a lady love. Well, I actually think he's looking for a love for himself, but that's entirely up, up in the air for them. Knowing it's time for a constitutional, Pongo takes Roger out to the park, where they bump into Anita and, of course, Pongo's lady love, Perdita. After a few misgivings, things happened and love is sparked. Now Roger and Anita bring up their puppies as they should as part of their family. It's not until Anita's best friend from college, Cruella, comes into the picture. What would Anita's friend from college ever want now that Roger is a great writer of song? Well, You would think maybe a theme song, which he does, or maybe she's doing advertising, who knows? But it turns out Cruella is indeed infatuated with fur. And the fur of the puppies is what she wants. And it just so happens that Pongo and Perdita are indeed ready to have a litter. Discovering that the litter has come to be, Cruella finds its time to take what's due to her. Roger and Anita say no. Pongo and Perdita are pleased. But no has a different meaning to Cruella. And she has the puppies kidnapped. Frantic and scared, Pongo and Perdita go out in search for their puppies. And it's not just the 15 that they originally had. It is soon discovered that Cruella has kidnapped 99 puppies in total. Now what would a woman that crazy want to do with 99 puppies? It seems that she wants to create coats made of puppy fur just for her. Pongo and Perdita cannot find the puppies alone, and uses the starlight bark to help bring all of the puppies of the world together, united, to find information. Kind of like an early cell phone, if you think about it, to bring them all together to find out where they are hiding. It is soon discovered by the Colonel, Sergeant Tibbs, and the Captain that Jasper and Horace, Cruella's henchmen, have taken the puppies to Hell Hall. Now, what's Disney's fascination with Hell recently? If you go back to the last film, of course being Sleeping Beauty, she says Hell, and that's really bad. And then, of course, we go to Hell Hall. But I digress. Sergeant Tibbs' cunning cat-like maneuvers, well, because he is a cat, is able to get all 99 puppies out safely but not without being discovered. And thus, Horace, Jasper, and Cruella are after each and every puppy that they can capture. Surviving the bitter cold, they make it to a fine small town where they are nearly home free. And with the help of a little soot and a little ingenuity, the puppies are on a truck headed back to London. Of course, not without a few chases and fights, making sure that Cruella never gets these puppies again. Roger and Anita believe there's no hope for the puppies and have no means to understand why Pongo and Perdita would leave. It's not until these black lab puppies come in, only to be discovered that they are truly the 101 Dalmatians, creating their own Dalmatian plantation. Now with this being a diamond edition you would expect many great things and you do in many respects in the quality of the video pristine we're back to wonderful beautiful crispness the scratchiness that the the actual film negative had been giving let's think back to sword in the stone and especially mickey's christmas carol gone eliminated it's beautiful you can actually see what makes me feel as more of a drawing come to life when it comes to this film. A lot of harsh edges, a lot of black and white, but a lot of beauty that I think is lost when people discuss this film. Audio, we are back to pristine 7.1 audio. There is another digital track that you can listen to if you choose to be in its strict mono version. For us purists, you have that opportunity as well. Will I say it's the best remix in audio? Not necessarily, but you know what? I'm just glad to have this film in my hand. What else are you going to get? Well, it just so happens that Rolly Crump, hmm, seems interesting, who might be upstairs? Along with many artists and animators from the film, including voice actors, reminiscing about their time doing this program, as well as using a time-saving measure called Xerox. Hmm. The ingenuity that came through this film, yet I still feel is one of the lost treasures. It seems odd that this film has not been re-released as often as other classics. Be thankful that this one came out. 101 Dalmatians, it's a five facts with young Cameron Boyce. He played Cruella's son in the new upcoming show The Descendant. Be on the lookout for this Disney Channel exclusive. I'm looking forward to it. He explains the interesting things that make 101 Dalmatians 101 Reasons for you to watch. The Further Adventures of Thunderbolt, a beautiful briefly animated film featuring Thunderbolt and what happens after the waterfall. The best doggone dog in the world It is considered the 10th episode of The Wonderful World of Disney's fourth season. And believe it or not, it is presented in high def. Of course, you get it all done, this fine feature in Disney View. I have to say though, of the Disney Views, this was not my favorite. I think it distracted just a bit, but not by much. And the making of 101 Dalmatians and many different views of that. And this comes from the past incarnation. Of the DVD release of Dalmatians. You also get music tracks that include Selena Gomez singing Cruella de Vil, a deleted song called March of the 101, another abandoned song Cheerio, Goodbye, Toodaloo and Hip Hip, as well as Don't Buy a Parrot from a Sailor. Of course there are also demos and alternative versions of these songs. Also included How to draw Cruella de Vil, Sincerely Yours, Walt Disney, trailers, TV spots, and promotional radio spots all in SD for you to enjoy. The great thing about those classic moments, all in SD for the most part, all of the previous stuff all shot in HD, so you're getting that Wonderful World of Disney piece in HD, Thunderbolt in HD, you're really going to enjoy this. Can I speak highly enough of this show? Not enough. I'm so glad to have it back into the vault that it pleases me that this was a Diamond Edition. I only look forward to our next Diamond Edition, which won't be in until October when we see Aladdin's lamp land back here. So I'm going to file this one under Dalmatian Plantation, and we will enjoy another fine feature film next week down here in the vault. So remember, gang, the magic of Disney movies is always a few spots away and always inside of you.
2: Envelope to Davis and Kirk right down that piece. get them spinning. Hope we have some good winds back there in New York. <laughs> this little mobile is a scale model of our Tower of the Four Winds that stands at the entrance to the UNICEF Pavilion at the World's Fair. And the real tower is, how tall is the real tower world? It's 120 feet. 120 feet. And it can be seen from all over the fairgrounds, we hope. So when you visit the fair, ask your friends to meet you under the Tower of the Four Winds at our pavilion here. Incidentally, if you're looking for our good friend and sponsor, Eastman Kodak, they're right next door to our UNICEF exhibit. And if you can't find UNICEF, remember, it's right next door to Eastman Kodak. Now, the tower's colorful figures represent animals from all over the world, I think. Don't they? That's right. What animals?
6: Oh, there's a camel and
3: a llama.
2: Where's the camel?
6: The camel's the little green ball on the carousel. That's the camel? (laughs) You
2: know, like all our other exhibits, we checked the real tower out carefully before shipping it to New York. And here's how it looked when Roland and I went down and gave it a final dry run.
0: Lights. Camera. Action. It's time for this week's
1: Disney On Demand special guest. All right, all of you D-heads, you tuned in for another magical installment of Disney Blues, Disney On Demand, and this week, our very special guest is no stranger to any of you. You know him as an artist, an in-betweener, an imagineer, a person who has been involved in such classics as 101 Dalmatians, Sleeping Beauty, the larger-than-life clock outside of It's a Small World, a tiki god of sorts with the enchanted tiki room, this is a person who is an icon within the Walt Disney Company, and many of you who know him as an imagineer and more as somebody... as his book says, has many cute stories. It's the one and only the legend, Mr. Rolly Crump. Welcome to Disney On Demand. And as I always like to begin each show with all of our special guests, just how did you get involved with Disney and being an artist throughout your entire life?
6: Uh, Thank you very much. Well, let's see. Uh, Let's start about uh, when I was three, (laughs) because uh, in my book, there's a little picture of Santa Claus and the reindeer that I drew when I was three years old, and to be honest with you, I'm shocked that you can actually figure out what it is. But my mother was really sweet. Uh, she was my, my mentor because she constantly w- wanted me to continue with my art. <clears throat> which a lot of times I don't think parents cared that much about the kids being an artist. I think they think they should be something else. But anyway, my mother supported me in that area. And so <clears throat> that with her support and for the, and the drive that I had, it, as the years went on, uh and basically self-taught because I, I never had any uh, formal training whatsoever. So it was just my own uh craziness. And, and we have kind of a, a cute saying that we, we learned not too long ago. It's always color outside the lines. And I basically think that my career was based on that. Everything I did was a little bit outside the lines. And also, believe in your crazy ideas. So those two statements I think are a, a good definition of the way I worked <clears throat> all these years but anyway um i got i started working at Disney in nineteen fifty two when I was twenty two years old, and I showed my portfolio <clears throat> to the uh the the people there at the uh, they were head of the the animation department, and they uh said they'd call me back and let me know if they were going to hire me. <clears throat> And they they did. They called me back, and they hired me. And then there was a later date that I was told by one of those gentlemen that it was the worst portfolio that was ever presented at Disney Studios and and to get hired. So anyway, that gets back to drawing outside the lines.
1: Well, I think that is something that is true for everybody is that you want to make sure that you draw outside of those lines. And that led you to what you do, as you said, with the Walt Disney Studios and being an artist and that love early on and the support from your parents to help you embrace that.
6: Yeah. Now, the studio also helped because the freedom that we had on the lot was absolutely unreal. And I mean, Walt just gave us a tremendous amount of freedom. That we could get away with stuff, and it was just a, it was a, it wasn't like going to work. <clears throat> it was like going some some place to play and have a good time, which we did. And oh, by the way, <clears throat> we did it. We did work in animation, and do and do scenes and stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, and then the other thing that's uh, interesting <clears throat> is you have to remember that cartoonists are absolutely crazy people, and they and being in different rooms with all the different cartoonists that I worked with was an incredible uh, education. Uh, I learned something every day that I went to went to work by the people I worked with, which was just absolutely marvelous. And, I, and in fact, I mentioned that to Walt one time. <clears throat> he said, uh, you know, Rolly, where do you get all your crazy ideas? And, and I said, I get them from you. And he said, what do you mean from me? And I said, well, being in all these different rooms. Anyway, when I told Walt that I learned all, everything I could from him, he was really—I mean—he really was shocked. <clears throat> I don't think—I don't think it ever dawned on him that all these artists working together kind of stimulated each other. You know, it was that cross-pollination. I think that was so so beautiful about the studio. <clears throat> so that basically was uh, the bottom line. And imagination. You know, the the whole place was filled with. You know, if you're a cartoonist. Your, your imagination goes crazy all the time anyway. <clears throat> so it was a marvelous, marvelous time. I did get to work on the 101 Dalmatians, uh, and I was working with Eric Larson at the time, who was one of the nine old men, and, and I learned a tremendous amount from him. And um, he kept wanting me to learn to be an animator. And as the years went on, I really didn't have any desire to animate. I enjoyed being an assistant, a cleanup man, but I really didn't, uh, I just, I don't know, there was something about the new animation that was on the outside that was more contemporary was what I was leaning towards to where <clears throat> Disney's animation was kind of the old hat, and uh, which absolutely was, they were geniuses. But I, I don't know, for some reason, I was attracted to more contemporary artwork and designs. But anyway, uh, he, um, he was really sweet. He said, Roland, I want you to animate a scene. So I said okay, so he gave me a scene to animate and I animated it <clears throat> and then we got it to test on it, we got it back and he looked at me and he says, "God, Rowan, you don't want to be an animator, that's obvious." <laughs> so what happened was <clears throat> I finally got to do some animation. When we did the puppies and the 101 Dalmatians watching television, the puppies had no spots. They would absolutely animate all the animators, all the I mean all the animals and the, and the dogs and then you put the spots on later. So he, Eric said, I want you to do all the spots. So I designed all the spots for each one of the, the puppies and did all the spots on them and actually did every drawing. <clears throat> now, that's 24 drawings a second, so that's a bunch of drawings, and it took me three months to animate the spots on that one little sequence where the puppies are watching television. So that's my claim to fame of doing the spots on the puppies <laughs> in the Dalmatians. <clears throat> anyway, um, Eric knew that I I had I was reaching out for other things. He knew that I used to go hang out at the model shop. And then, of course, uh, Wed came along to design Disneyland, and I was really, <clears throat> really excited about that. So when the opportunity came <clears throat> for me to leave animation and, and go to WED, I was absolutely thrilled. And then, of course, the the uh, ed- education process exploded because now I'm working with people that are actually building things that are three-dimensional. <clears throat> and so building Disneyland was really, really something. And I can remember going to Disneyland and, and redoing the dark rides <clears throat> and adding things to the dark rides and just making up things as we went. I mean, uh, <clears throat> one of the things that we did, uh, Yale Gracie and I were sent down to uh, work on the uh, Snow White ride <clears throat> and kind of give it some uh, a little bit of pizzazz, as, as they called it. So I actually <clears throat> built a lot of uh, batmobiles out of cardboard, and so I hung them in the ride. And so we, when the, when the people go through the ride, there are these bats in that one sequence out in the forest with the bats flying around and all they were were just cut out pieces of paper on strings, and they were being blown by the fans that we had. So you can see the technology in those days was really quite simple. But as time went on, of course, it got a lot more complicated. <clears throat> now, the uh, one of the other things – oh my wife was laughing at me, aren't you –
1: Oh, that's quite all right. That's the joy of having wives. They keep us all in line, and mine does that with me. (laughs) Now, in moving forward with that, too, and the attractions, that's going to lead me into one of my personal favorites in the Enchanted Tiki Room. Now, I, myself, I love the Tiki Room, the music, I have Tiki Totems in our basement, and I just love the attraction itself. Now, what's the story behind this little restaurant that turned into a full-fledged attraction for many guests?
6: Well, it's interesting because... um... We, we were sitting in a – actually, I'll have to back into this a little bit. There was – we were going to build a little tea room on Main Street, and uh, I was designing this little tea room. You know, all I did was serve tea and cookies and stuff. And then they decided that they were going to move the tea room into the uh, that Adventureland area. So I was asked to come sit in a meeting on that, and, uh, with a group of uh, the other, uh, designers and architects. <clears throat> and so Walt took off and said, well, we're gonna do this little Tahitian restaurant. <clears throat> and, uh, so we all sat there and we listened to him. <clears throat> and so one of the, uh, the fellow that was running it, Dick Irvine, who was in charge, asked John Hench, the lead, uh, art, um, you know, art director, <clears throat> to do a, run, a rendering of what uh, possibly uh, the tiki room would look, the little restaurant would look like <clears throat> well this is another cute story uh, John did this gorgeous rendering <clears throat> we met with Walt the following week and uh, it was a beautiful sculptured of, of tikis and and there were bird cages and exotic birds in them and everything <clears throat> and Walt took one look at it and he turned to John and he said John you can't put birds in the restaurant and John said why not and he says, because they'll poop in the food. <laughs> and, and so everybody everybody kind of laughed, and, and Walt really said that. <clears throat> and John said, no, these are not real birds, uh, Walt. These are uh, stuffed birds. And Walt said, John, Disney does not stuff birds. <clears throat> he said, well, no, no, no. They look like they're stuffed He says, but they're not. They're little mechanical birds. And Walt said, oh, little mechanical birds. So now you can imagine there's about six or seven of us sitting in a meeting and just talking back and forth. You know, we're not designing, we're just talking. And by the time you got finished with a couple of hours with Walt, something obviously gets designed by by the committee that did nothing but talk about it. So, yeah, really, truthfully, it was really crazy. So anyway, from then on, uh, Walt wanted a, a bird show in there, and that he wanted. He asked me, he said, uh, "Roland, he said, uh, I want you to do a, a bird mobile coming out of the ceiling." And I looked at him. I said, "What?" He said, "No, I want you to take and let, do like a big chandelier <clears throat> with all these birds coming out of the ceiling." So I said, "Okay, I'll do that." And uh, because I'd do anything he asked me to do, and I didn't have a clue what I was doing. So what happened was they, they contacted Maple, <clears throat> you know, the design, well that was, it wasn't Maple yet, actually it was the, uh, machine shop over at the studio to design an armature <clears throat> of something that would hold birds and also would have the lines, the air lines that would go to each one of the spots on the chandelier so the bird can animate. <clears throat> so the next thing I know, this big piece of iron, comes in with these weird arms on it and everything and they said, Okay, Rolly, make make you know, make it look like a piece of driftwood. And I said, What? So they gave me the plastiline clay that I work with and they put me on a Raymond lift that would lift me up and I'd sit up there for a couple hours at a time putting all this clay on this armature to make it look like it was a, a broken piece of driftwood that had been out in the ocean for a while. So it actually turned out really quite well. I was shocked, but I just made it up as I went. There was no drawings on that or anything. It was just like a a little, and if you really look at it, it does. It just looks like an old piece of wood, but the birds are the show. So it just looks like a bunch of birds perched on this funny little piece of wood that opens up that comes out of the ceiling. Meanwhile uh Walt asked me, he said, you know, when people have to wait for uh, to eat any food, you know, you have to entertain them. <clears throat> so he said, he says, I want you to uh, come up with a pre-show area outside there. So I went to John Hench, and I said, John, what the hell do I do? <clears throat> he says, you get a book out of the library and find out what the gods are like in the islands of the Pacific, which I did. And I did, there was missionaries had written a beautiful book called Whispers on the Wind. And it was stories of the, the islanders and, and what they believed in and what they, and the gods and goddesses that they believed in. <clears throat> so I read the book. I got the names of all the gods and goddesses. And I got uh, a book on all the sculpting of them. And so I started sculpting these, uh, these tiki gods. <clears throat> and the, the beautiful part about this story is, that it was really cold in the model shop that time of year. It was the early spring, and the plastiline clay is so is 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 hard. You have to keep it warm to keep it soft. So it wasn't. Uh, I couldn't get the the model shop to be warm enough to make the clay soft. So I put the uh, armature that I did on a set of wheels and push it out into the parking lot where the sun was. And so I actually the first sculpture I ever did on the which is Maui. Which is uh, the one that's spitting out water was actually sculpted in the parking lot. <clears throat> and then I take him in every night and I bring him out the next day. And I did about four of those cheeky guns in the parking lot. Now, <clears throat> I'd love to tell these stories because <clears throat> everybody thinks that when you're working for Disney or whatever it is, everything is perfect. <laughs> well, no, it's not. These are what we call the happy accidents. You just make, you just do what you're told to and you, you figure out how to get it done. So I had a lot of fun. I had a lot of fun with the Tiki's.
1: And in looking back at all these Tiki's too, and like you said, you do it to get it done because it's your job. And years later, you realized it was something special and unique. And with something like that in the Tiki Room, it does it ever amaze you that still generations later, people still love this attraction? I mean, I have four kids and they love the Tiki Room as much as I do. And are you ever amazed at how many people still are fond of this attraction and how many are still discovering it for the very first time now?
6: Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's, uh well, you know, uh, this gets back to <clears throat> what I was saying about happy accidents. Once we finish, and you know, it's interesting, I, when you paint or you do sculpt or anything like that, the painting gets to a point to where it starts telling you what to do. In other words, I love it when I start talking with the, whatever it is I'm designing. And I know that when we got finished with the Tiki Room and it was running, <clears throat> I noticed that the drummers that were up on the upper shelves there, looked really dead when they were drumming. They were drumming and everything, and I thought, wow, they need some spark to them. So I got those little sparkle trucks on the back of sparkler trucks, those little round discs, and I screwed all those little discs into their eyes so when they pe- beat the drums, the eyes would flash. And it really brought a lot of life to those dumb little things, and I thought it was kind of cute because, it, again, it was telling me what to do. I am amazed. Uh, because of the you know we got so so sophisticated with our animation and everything, but I think there's a a naive charm <clears throat> about the show uh that I think it's just and it's magical because you never know that this big sprout of water is going to come out of the the center of it, and you don't you never you, you, you don't you don't know that all of a sudden it's going to start raining <clears throat> outside your windows and it looks like it's rain and thunder, so I think a lot of the simple little effects that were put into that show, as naive as they were, Still make the show what it is.
1: Definitely. And I guess moving aside from the Tiki Room and going forward with other attractions and many of those like Small World and the World's Fair. Now, how everybody loves It's a Small World, the music, the attraction, and that it was a result of the fair. Now, what exactly was your involvement with the attraction and being at the World's Fair, working under Walt Disney, and your duty as part of this monumental fair?
6: Well, it was uh, the first time I'd ever been in New York, which was really exciting. But there's one little story I have to tell you. The beginning of I I was there was uh, five of us that were in, we were already doing the World's Fair we had the Ford Pavilion we had General Electric you know we had Mr. Lincoln <clears throat> and one day Dick Irvine who was running with called me in and there was Claude Coates myself Mark Davis John Hench, and Dick Irvine and Walt <clears throat> and we're all sitting there and Walt had called the meeting. <clears throat> And uh, we we were looking at him, and he said, well, you know, he said, there's still one piece of real estate left at the World's Fair, and he said, I think we should get that. He says, I have an idea of a little boat ride. And we all looked at each other like, what the hell is he talking about, a little boat ride, <clears throat> because we had just finished Mr. Lincoln, which was a, an animatronic figure above and beyond anything that had ever been done uh, General Electric had all of these animatronic figures. And we thought he wants to do a little boat ride. <clears throat> now get this: nine months of the date, we opened Small World at the World's Fair, and nothing has ever been designed and built in that time frame. <clears throat> and it was just because of Walt and his imagination, and we followed his lead. <clears throat> and it was absolutely incredible. <clears throat> and then to go back there and install. see we, uh, what we did was we all loved to see things mocked up. Full size. So what we did was we would take one section at a time of the ride and we'd build it and then we'd take it over to the sound stage. We'd mock up it exactly the way it's going to be in the show with the lighting, the music and everything. And then we had a boat on wheels and we put Walt in the boat and then we would push the boat through at the same speed as if he was riding in the trough and let him take a look at it. And it was absolutely amazing. I mean, he bought off on them all the time. We'd push him through once or twice, and he'd come back and ship it. And then the next thing we would do, we'd go to another section of the ride, and we were having all these sets built outside the studio. A company called Grosh Studios built the sets, so they were all being subcontracted out. So to watch how these pieces are all done on different locations and all brought together... was really very entertaining and also extremely educational.
1: (laughs) And when the attraction finally came to the parks, you had involvement with that as well, correct? And if I'm correct, you created an all new finale for this, right?
6: Number one, uh, the finale of the ride uh, was built and designed in three days out of nothing but a bunch of paper cup that was cut. And so we all felt that the finale was pretty sad so the first thing we did when we brought it back to Disneyland was redesign the finale. And, of course, bring it back to Disneyland, <clears throat> we had the, the challenge of the front end. So Walt asked me to design the facade. Now, the facade is three, uh, 600 feet long and 60 feet high, which is huge. And so I said, okay. So I took all the Mary sketches that she had done that were just perfect to work from, and uh, the other fellow that worked in the model shop, Fred Jürger and I <clears throat> sat down with cardboard and black pins, and we cut out a, a cardboard model in five working days of the complete facade. And uh, <clears throat> the cute story about that is that Walt was coming over to take a look at the, the model that we built, and we had made some little trees that we wanted to put out in front and sort of dress the fun end of uh, small world, <clears throat> but we had no place to put them so when we were working with the model. So we had them on a, a nice little piece of cardboard and we put it up on top of the box that the, represented the building <clears throat> and we did it there so we could reach up and, and get a hold of the little trees and put them down in the ground. <clears throat> well, Walt came over and he got down and he, he looked at it and he, he got a big smile on his face. He says, you know what I really like what you guys did? He says, you put trees on the roof. And he says, the public won't even know there's a building back there. And, when, and Fred and I both said, yeah, Walt. And then all of a sudden we both started laughing. <clears throat> we explained to him the only reason trees were up there because it was easier for us to reach up and get, get them for the model. And Walt said, I don't care. He said, I want trees on the roof. So we put trees on the roof in small world and they were there for quite a few years <clears throat> but to maintain trees and boxes on top of that roof became a, a nightmare and as, it, as the years went on they slowly disappeared <clears throat> but this is what happened you know the old man would see something and we would do it and it would turn out okay. So, <laughs> we had a lot of fun.
1: <laughs> and with Small World too, you had your hand in creating other larger than life things like the larger than life clock that everybody knows from around the world. It's iconic. It's one of those that's going to go in the Disney history books for generations. Now, what was it like working on that since it is so iconic for the Disney parks?
6: Well, now that's another kid story. Um, well, there was a platform out in front uh, when I was building this model. Actually, we made it made the model out of wood, and uh, there was a platform in the front there where the boats went into the building, and there was nothing on it. So Walt said, "Rolly, what are you going to put there? And I said, I don't know. I said, maybe we'll have orchestras come and play there for the people that are saying. I said, no, 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 we're not going to have any orchestras out there. So he said to me, why don't you put a clock there? Oh, okay. So I called Mary Blair on the phone, and I said, Mary, Walt wants a clock in the front of Small World. Please draw me a sketch of what a Small World clock would look like, which she did. A little pen and ink drawing that's just gorgeous. In fact, I still have that here at my house. I've got it tucked away. It disappeared and it ended up at Roly's house. Anyway, I took and built a little wooden model, which I also have, of what the clock would look like. And I presented it to Walt. Walt bought off on it. And sure enough, we have a clock there that tells the time. And you know, the cute story is, when we showed, when we ran the model, uh, that actually functioned exactly like the clock with the music and the doors opening up and the trumpeters blowing and everything. <clears throat> we had eight little figures come from behind the clock and walk around front and go out and go around the clock and disappear in the back side. And Walt took one look and he said, no, he says, I don't want figures coming out the back door. He says, I want them coming out the front door. And he says, you know how many hours are in a day? And I said, 24. And he says, yep. He says, I want 24 figures. So he said, okay. So now we have 24 figures, and they come out of the front and go to the back. So these little, little simple little statements that he would make would be absolutely incredible. The end results.
1: And those are things that have gone down in the parks that everybody loves and that are iconic. And that's going to lead me to other things that you were involved with as well in terms that it was your job, as you say, the instances where you worked on things like the Adventureland Bazaar and times when you thought that they just people didn't think that they would get done. And you pulled it off. You made it happen. What was it like working in those circumstances where people didn't think you'd be able to accomplish it and yet you knocked it out of the park?
6: I loved them. I absolutely loved them. In fact, I had so damn much fun. You know, the interesting thing about it, and I and I, I can't explain it, but working with Walt, I don't know, there was something about his magic that you, you caught on. Um, I did anything that he asked me to do, even though I'd never done it before in my life. <clears throat> so there was uh, one thing that came out about the bazaar, and it was an old bazaar that had been there, and all it did was sell rubber lizards, and it was dark and it was kind of, you know, ugly in there and <clears throat> nobody'd even go in to buy the rubber lizards because it was not inviting at all. So, um, Dick Irvine said that Walt wanted me to redesign the, the bazaar. <clears throat> I said, okay. So the good news is, and again, it's teamwork. He, they teamed me up with a fellow that was the head of merchandise at Disneyland and his name was Jack Olson. And I said, Jack, you got to help me do this. He said, yeah, Roland, really, whatever you want. So I had him tell me how high he wanted the counters, and where he wanted the ticket booth. I mean, where he, excuse me, where he wanted the cash registers and everything. And then he, in turn, again this is you know keeping your being a big good sponge. He introduced me to the bone yard. Now the bone yard at Disneyland is like the junkyard where they they have all this stuff that they don't know what to do with, and they either put it in a big building or they put it outside. Well, in this particular case. There were old ticket booths. We used to have ticket booths all over Disneyland in the early years so you could buy tickets once you were in the park. <clears throat> so all of a sudden I saw these ticket booths. I said, oh, my God, uh, I'll use the ticket booth for the cashier stand. So I had the ticket We were There was a soundstage that we had leased to build our bazaar in. So I had the ticket booths brought over there. And then I did little sketches <clears throat> of all the different other pieces of architecture that were in the ride. And I give them to the carpenters, and the car, and so, you know, you build it up out of the seat of your pants, and you made, you mailed it, and you made it up as you went. <clears throat> anyway, I give these sketches to the carpenters, and finally the carpenters came to me and they said, well, oh, because they were building off my drawings, they said, what is the scale? And I said, scale? I didn't even know what scale was. And he says, well, you know, so many inches to the foot. And I said, really? So, so he and I sat down, and uh, looked at the drawings, and I said, well, this is about eight feet. And so we worked back and forth, and we actually developed our own scale ruler, a little cardboard scale ruler that he and I had that represented my – because when I did the sketches, I was thinking about how tall they'd be and how wide they'd be, not even thinking about scale. So once it was finished, it was all over with – the carpenter came in to me and he said, do you mind if I keep your scale ruler? He said, because we might work together sometime. (laughs) So you know what it is? It's just having a good time and having fun, but working your ass off at the same time, you know?
1: Definitely, And that's the kind of thing, too, where you have all these wonderful, fantastic stories from early on. And I know we're going to revisit some of these in a bit here, but moving forward and contributing to Epcot Center. Now, that is something I think is fantastic. And working on this as project manager for the Land and Wonders of Life Pavilion, what was it like leaving the Walt Disney Company and then coming back sometime later to work on these great ventures as part of an all-new park for the Walt Disney Company with Epcot, the Land, and the Wonders of Life Pavilions?
6: Well, that was, that was another one, you know not to be scared Uh, I did the land pavilion it was the largest pavilion at Epcot it's five acres under roof and again you have to work with people that know the subject and then all your responsibility is to present it in an entertaining way and there was one uh gentleman that I worked with Dr. Charles Lewis when I was working on the life health pavilion and he made one of the greatest statements that I've ever heard <clears throat> because it was def- directly related to Dizzy. He says, if it's a ton of fun and an ounce of information, you reach a teachable moment. So that's what our responsibility was, is to make it a ton of fun. And by the way, put a little information in there. So <clears throat> that's exactly the way, that's the way we approached uh, the land pavilion. And luckily I had a, a, a tremendous team. People And again, I apologize for being this old deaf guy, but anyway, I'm having a lot of fun. Um, Well, you know what? Being on the outside, I didn't realize how much I had learned working with Walt and with the company. And when I started working on the outside, I'd sit in meetings with architects. When I first started sitting in those meetings, I was scared because I'd never had to work with architects on the outside before. And I thought, Jesus, uh, you know, I I don't know what I'm going to be able to handle this or not. Well, for some ungodly known reason, what I was taught was absolutely very valid. Uh, there was something about the way I was taught about how you design that gave me an edge on everything. So when I was working on the outside, I had no fear. I was fearless. And, uh, It was just a matter, again, of putting a good team together to work with me and design and build stuff on the outside. And the other thing I learned, too, even when I was with Disney, I was always aware of the budget. I thought it was extremely important that we stayed within budget. So when I got on the outside, the budgets were really tiny little things compared to working with Disney. But So to be able to do something entertaining, you know, with no budget, was a great challenge and it was easy. I didn't have any problem at all. In fact I've I've always felt designers have, have the edge because it's their imagination that's gonna carry all this through and they have to think it out. And it, I never had any problem. In fact I was never scared for some reason and I can't I all I can say is to thank Walt with that. Yeah, well going back to Epcot it was very simple. Uh I mean I enjoyed going back. It was great um because all of the, you know after a while when you've been in the business as long as I was you know you you you're, you I don't know you're fearless <laughs> and uh so I, when I went back there was no problem i enjoyed going back and doing whatever in fact i've always enjoyed uh challenges and that's from the very very beginning so there was never a, a real big challenge for me to speak of <clears throat> I think one of the big challenges, the biggest challenge I ever had, was I did a a, a talking room in a Portuguese fort in in uh, in the country of Oman. <clears throat> now I was doing working on the outside, and this company I was working with said, you know, uh, the Sultan of Oman wants to take this old fort and make it into an entertainment center and tell the history of Oman in eight minutes. Enrolly, we want you to design it. I thought, oh, my God. Now, you're going to a foreign country, an Arabic country. They take you to this fort that was built in 1500, and they walk you around the fort and say, okay, now find the room that you're going to put this show in, and you don't even know what the show is. So I found this room, and I took photographs of it and everything. And then it dawned on me there was something I always wanted to do, and that was have a room talk to you. So I decided to do a talking room. So I designed this room that had all these different uh, pieces of furniture in it and everything that was directly related to the history of Oman. And so I designed this whole show, and then we had a writer write this show about the history of Oman, and we we put it in this room, and each wall would tell you a different story because of what was hanging on the wall. I never met the Sultan of Oman, but I found out later that he called it his talking room, and he put he put marble in the floor to make it a very gorgeous room. So, and by the way, every because it was pre-recorded on a tape and turned over to the audience, every uh, it was it was uh, recorded in every language. If there was people from Japan that came to visit, the whole room would talk to them in Japanese. If there was somebody from Mexico, they talked to him in Spanish. So it was, again, one of my favorite projects.
1: And with that, like you said, many projects aside from the Disney Company, and we'll get back to that more with the Disney Company shortly, but creating your own firm and working on a variety of things like Oman, Tokyo, the Gambling Hall of Fame in Las Vegas. What was it like doing many of these restaurants in other locations that was very different from the typical Disney style?
6: Well, you can take Las Vegas. I did a... uh... Actually, what happened, it was uh Atlantic City. I was working for Steve Wynn at all the Golden Nugget, and he had just opened up a new casino in Atlantic City. <clears throat> and he had this big birdcage, and it was 50 feet high. And he took me to it. He knew my background and everything and what I had done. <clears throat> he says, Roland, I want you to put a, shirt in the, a show in this birdcage. He said, those macaws <clears throat> fly up to the top and sit up at the top there and poop all day long. He said, that's not a show. So my responsibility was design a show to go in this 50-foot bird cage. Well, luckily, a lot of the people that left the Disney organization and had their own companies. So I knew a company that did animatronic birds. And so when I got back to Las Vegas, I told Steve, I said, I'm going to do a bird show, and I know a company in L.A. that will build the birds for me, and then we'll ship them to Atlantic City. He said, great. So that's exactly what we did. We built this bird show in this uh, company out in the San Fernando Valley, shipped it back to uh, Atlantic City, and it was, it was one of the most popular shows that he had there when he had the, uh, the uh, casino there.
1: Now, aside from that and getting back to Disney things and many of the animation classics that get overlooked over time and many of my personal favorites that was cutting edge for its time, it was beautiful, gorgeous, and of course, I'm talking about Sleeping Beauty. And you working in the animation department, the stories from what I've heard from many people is that many gags were played, tricks, hijinks on each other. First off, what was it like working on such classics like Sleeping Beauty? And then also, what were some of the gags that were played on each other over the years as part of being part of the animation department?
6: Yeah, well, working uh, on Sleeping Beauty was was marvelous, absolutely marvelous. But, uh, again, again, you're talking about the gags. Well, again, getting back to what I said earlier, that uh, cartoonists are the craziest bunch of guys that were ever put on this planet. <clears throat> every uh, Every day you went to work, you never knew what gag would take place. It might happen in your room or it might happen in another room. <clears throat> and I'll give you an example. Um uh, one of the one of the head animators, uh, Mill Call, who did all all the lead characters in in Sleeping Beauty, I worked for his assistants, and uh, their room was right next door to his. And one night I was working overtime with them, and they're on their hands and knees and they're drilling a hole in the wall. And uh, I said, "What are we doing?" I said, "We're building a hole and we're cutting a hole in the wall." I said, "What for?" Well, in animation, your animation desk as a hole in the back of the desk, underneath the desk, that the cord comes through, the electric cord that lights the, the, the your desk, it lights up your panel that you work on. So what they did was they had gotten a big ball, they had a squeeze ball, and they had this little hose that they put through that hole, and they filled it with talcum powder. And what they do is during the day when milk call is working, they'd squeeze the ball. And, and his crotch should be covered with talcum powder. And so he'd get up, you know, he wouldn't he wouldn't feel it. Obviously, he wouldn't feel it. So he'd get up to go to the bathroom, and there'd be talcum powder all over his crotch. <clears throat> it drove him crazy, absolutely drove him crazy. And uh, then one day, he was going to have lunch with Walt. So they decided, well, they've shot the talcum powder on him long enough. Uh, let's get him with hot water. So they squeezed the ball and hit him right in the crotch. So he had to go have lunch in the, in the coral room with a big wet spot all over his pants in his crotch. And, of course, at that point, he figured out what the hell had been going on. But that's, that's the extent that they would go to, for God's sake, to pull a gag. <clears throat> you know, if you want to hear about gags, the all-time gag, and this is the best one ever, happened at Hyperion. <clears throat> Uh, the fellow that played uh the musketeer, big, the big big guy on the on the show, he was huge. He was a guy that worked in animation. He was the best story man Walt ever had. Uh, Roy Williams was his name. <clears throat> and um, they got a new origin story, and uh, they had a new story man start, and he was a little guy. <clears throat> and so the the other guys in story said, "We want to play a gag on Roy." And they said, oh, he said, okay, he said, but we want to use you. He said, fine. So they said, we want you to start wearing real baggy pants. And when he wants to know why you're wearing baggy pants, tell him that you used to weigh 300 pounds because he used to always want to lose weight. So the little guy said, great. So he started wearing these baggy pants to work. And finally Roy couldn't stand it and said, why are you wearing baggy pants? And he said, well, he said I used to weigh 300 pounds. And he said, I went on this real good diet. And I lost 300 pounds, and so he said, we've moved out here from New York, and I haven't been able to get buy my new clothes because it, that, it just took place before I moved out here. <clears throat> so Roy says, well, I want to know. I want to know what it is. And he said, okay. He says, I'll tell you. <clears throat> and Roy says, well, what is it? He says, it's sauerkraut juice. And Roy says, sauerkraut juice? He says, yes. He says, well, I'll go get some. They said, no, no, no. Now, what they had planned was Roy was to give a presentation to Walt, Friday after lunch. So, what they did was they told him that uh, they were telling him there's a certain time of the week that you drink the sauerkraut juice. And if you do it on the right day and the right time, it'll work beautifully for you. So, Roy said, okay, he didn't have a clue what the hell sauerkraut juice was. <clears throat> so, he said, well, you know, I'm a big guy. He says, I'll probably have two cans. He says, what should I do? And they said, well, on Friday for lunch, have two cans of sauerkraut juice. So he did. He had two cans of sauerkraut juice. Well, sure enough, he's in there at 1 o'clock, pinning up all of his story sketches and everything, and then all of a sudden he started getting these pains in his stomach, and he's going, oh, my God, oh, my God. And so just about the time he's ready to have to go to the bathroom bad, Walt comes in the door, and Roy says, I'll be right back. I'll be back in just a few minutes. And he runs down the hall, and they locked every bathroom in the entire building. Now, that's the all-time story about a gag, and I and I was told that story by numerous of the old guys that worked at Hyperion as a, probably the best gag that ever took place. Needless to say, Roy didn't come back that day. <laughs> And I'm sure
1: you have many of these stories and gags and such that lead me to, you know, working with Walt himself. And I've had the privilege of speaking with many people who have worked with him. And I am always amazed at how everyone's stories are so much different from each other's. Now, what was it like for you working with Walt, working with him, getting to know the man and exactly what he was like from your perspective?
6: Well, you know, he treated everybody different. Because if you ask, you know, what was Walt like, you're going to get a different different answer from everybody that worked with him because he talked to you at your level. And so uh, he was only interested in what you were doing. And I think that one thing was uh, he was the best casting director. He knew how to cast the right people. And uh, because of that, that's why the product was so good. I know that Mark Davis was an animator and Claude Coates was a background painter. So naturally, when he brought him over to work at Wed. He would let uh, Claude design the sets and let Mark design the animatronic figures. Same formula that it was in animation. And so Walt knew everybody so well, he knew exactly how to use them properly. And I think that was the whole secret uh, of working with Walt because he, he really knew everything. I mean, he was, <clears throat> you know, he had instant recall. I can remember being in a meeting with him on a certain subject. And, uh, we wouldn't meet with him again for maybe two weeks and we'd start the meeting over and he'd pick it up word for word where he left off. And, uh, one of the examples of that, there was a little a live action feature made called Toby Tyler. It was about a, a little guy, that, a little kid that worked in a circus. And, uh, Walt was in the sweat box one day with the uh, director watching the, uh, the, the, the rushes on the film. And it was a scene to where there were these elephants going down a trail. And at the end of, end of the scene, Walt turned to the director and he said, he said, you had um eight elephants going down that trail. And the director said, yes. He said, well, I read your script three years ago and you had 15 elephants. Now it just shows you the instant recall and, and that he had. So that was, you know, that was part of his magic. I mean, he never missed a trick. Absolutely incredible.
1: And with Walt, too, from what I've heard, is he's always decided to put the public first, if I'm correct. And was it always important for him to have that end product, you know, be top-notch, be high-end quality, and, of course, be for the public? Now, would you say that it's true that he always put the public first in everything he did?
6: Oh, yes. Oh, God, yes. And I'll give you an an example of that. Walt had his own apartment at Disneyland. And every day on the weekends, he'd go down there and stay there. And then he'd get in line with all the other people to hear what they'd say about the ride. And, of course, if you ever saw him in person, you'd never recognize him because he never combed his hair. He'd kind of, kind of bent over because he had a bad back, and he, he'd dress kind of casual. So he'd mix right in with the crowd. Well, one day he's walking around Disneyland, and he has to go to the bathroom. And so he goes into the toilet to go to the bathroom, and all the toilets are filled except the ones that you pay a dime for. Now, you could get into the ones if you had a dime, but those were not filled. The other ones were filled. And he didn't have a dime, so he couldn't go in there. So he went over to the maintenance department. And he said, I want all the paid toilets taken out of Disneyland. And they said, Walt, why? And he said, because I don't want anyone to go through what I went through to have to go to the bathroom and not have a dime. He says, I don't want that to ever happen to any of my guests. And they said, but Walt, we make thousands of dollars off those dimes. He says, I don't care. I don't want paid toilets at Disneyland. That's a a beautiful story. (laughs)
1: now continuing on we don't want to keep you too long and i know that we could talk for hours and hours with amazing stories and many that are in your fantastic book that i thoroughly enjoyed and now moving to the museum of the weird and the odds and the ideas and the strange things with that and taking us back to 1965 and now it's even a comic book just how did museum of the weird come about with you and yale gracie
6: (laughs) one of my favorite subjects Yale yeah, Gracie and I worked on the Haunted Mansion uh, for over three years at different time frames. And uh, the whole time that I was working on the mansion, Yale and I would dig out all the artwork that him had been done before we were assigned to work on it. <clears throat> and it was all kind of straight arrow, cat in the canary, eyes moving in the paintings and stuff, but nothing that had any real pizzazz to it. I mean, nothing that was different. Nothing, it was just kind of same old same old. And I remember <clears throat> seeing a film by, uh, uh, it was a French director that did The Beauty and the Beast. It was, film was released in 1947. And in the film, the beast lives in this castle. And the castle was alive. When the beast came in and walked down the hallways, there were these human arms holding torches. And they would move as he came by to lead his way, and when he got into where his main salon was, there was a, a, an arm out of a table holding a bowl of grapes, and, and when he reached for the grapes, the arm would, would push the, the grapes towards him, and then there were human faces on the fireplace that were looking back and forth and around, and steam was coming out of their mouths. And I said to myself, shit, that's what's gotta be in the mansion. We gotta get some surrealistic, some, some magical stuff in there. And, and instead of just the typical spooky house. So I had felt that way from the very beginning, but I never had a chance to kind of incorporate that. Well, finally, when we came back from the fair, nobody had anything to do. Walt had not given any of us uh, an assignment. So I started sketching up stuff that I thought should be in the haunted mansion that was weird weird pieces of sculpture and those pieces of weird pieces of sculpture would also be part of the architecture because that's the way it was in that film and i i was really taken with that so i did all these crazy sketches well dick irvine came in one day and said you know Walt's going to come over and and take a look at what you guys are working on as far as a haunted mansion so he said. Put your stuff together, and Jack Fergus that had worked with me had taken all my sketches and made little models of them and everything, which is the candle man and the the chair that stood up and walked and uh, that talked and and also the uh, organ grinder, the I mean, the organ organist that was a ghost. Anyway, I we had this all these sketches and these little models, <clears throat> and everybody that I was working with, the other guy said, you know, Walt's not going to like that stuff. It's too weird. And I said, I don't know whether he's going to like it or not. I said, I just feel that the the mansion has something a little weird in it, kind of shows some imagination, because I said, I don't see any, imagine, any imagination in it. Well, <clears throat> when it came time for the presentation, they put me over in the corner behind Walt, where he was going to come in and sit, and put off on a table and the stuff and everything. But they had the, all the other guys with their artwork up in front of Walt, and so we had about a two-hour meeting with Walt about the different parts of the mansion that the other guys were working on. And Walt said, well, uh, is that it, Dick Irvine? And Dick said, yeah, that's it, Walt. He said, what's this stuff over here in the corner? And he said, well, that's something Rolly did. And Walt says, what is it? And he said, we don't know. You ask Rolly." So so Walt said, "Rolly, what is this? And so I got his chair and my chair on wheels, and we scooted over to where it was. And I told him the story everything that the films I'd seen, the reason I was inspired to do this and that, and the other thing. He says, yeah, but how are you going to use it? I said, I don't know. I said, it just needs to be incorporated. Yeah, but how are you going to use it? I don't know. So we went through I don't know about three or four times, and finally Walt stood up and says, I'm going home. I'll see you guys tomorrow. So he just got up and left. Well, everybody came up to me and said, you know, we told you, Walt wouldn't like what you did. It was too weird. I said, yeah, but I said, I just did what I thought I should do. So the next morning, I get to work at 7 o'clock, and Walt Disney is sitting at my desk in my chair. And I walked up, and the first thing he said, you son of a bitch. And I said, oh, my God. I said, now what? He says, I didn't get an ounce of sleep last night. And I looked at him, and he still had the same clothes on that he did in the presentation the day before. So I said, whoa, wow, I'm sorry. And he said, no, no, don't be sorry. He says, all that weird shit you showed me. He says, I know exactly what to do with it. I said, you do? He says, yes. He says, when you, once we finish the Haunted Mansion, we're going to have the Museum of the Weird, and you're going to put all your stuff in there. And we're going to say we collected all this weird stuff from around the world, and we brought it to Disneyland so the public can see all this weird stuff. I said, oh, God. I said, that's great, Walt." Well, meanwhile, he gets Dick Irvine to get the other guys back into where my office was, brought them all back, and Walt took them through exactly what he wanted. I want a Museum of the Weird, and this is what, what it should be. And he gave him about a half-hour presentation, and then he got up and he says, I'm going to go home and go to bed, which was beautiful. He got up and left, and they all came over to me. He said, you know, Roy, we all knew you had something there. <laughs> anyway, of course, if he'd ever, if he'd lived, The Museum of the Word would have been in Disneyland, but because he didn't, they all, you know, poo-pooed and it was never used.
1: And with that, too, the Haunted Mansion pressed on to have its own fan following. And I personally would have loved to see the Museum of the Weird. And now being a comic book, that leads me to Walt once again. And when he passed away, as you said, he influenced so many people's lives. What was it like working for the Disney company after Walt Disney passed away? Was he truly that spark of inspiration and that spark within the company? And what was it like after he passed away and continuing on with the company?
6: Well, first of all, it became very political and, uh, I know that when Walt passed away, everybody was scrambling for their position. There was no direction given by anybody because we didn't have anybody talented enough to to know what we were doing. But the interesting thing about it was because Dick Irvine and I never got along. So he decided to get me, he wanted to get me out of the building because this is when they were going to design the museum of the, I mean they were going to, excuse me, they were going to design the haunted mansion. So what he did, he, he manufactured a position for me, and he wanted me to be supervising art director at Disneyland to be part of all the maintenance program. Whenever they're redoing an interior and changing the wallpaper, they needed an art director from WED there. So he decided that I'd be the art director from WED. So I spent three years working at Disneyland as supervising art director. And believe it, it was the most <clears throat> educational Project I ever had. I learned so much working with every division at Disneyland. And I thoroughly enjoyed it. I missed Walt, and I I knew what was going on at the studio. I knew what was going on at WED. And I could see that it was slowly but surely, you know, not the same power in there that was running it. And so I knew that I was going to leave WED, but I was thrilled to be part of Disneyland and being able to contribute to Disneyland. So it took me three years to figure out how to get out of there, which I did. I started my own company and I left, uh, in 1970. But the education that I got for those three years was, uh, was untouchable. Absolutely untouchable. So, and that's again, being a good sponge. I think the whole secret is to learn you have to be a good sponge.
1: And like you said, it was something that changed the dynamics and it also changed your direction as you were a sponge and soaked it all up and moved on from that. And with that, and looking back at all the different things that you learned working for the Disney company and on your own, creating your own company as well, is that something that you'd like to pass on in telling many aspiring artists, imagineers, or any career say that, is to be that sponge and soak it all up?
6: I think that's the most important thing is to be, be inquisitive and be a good sponge and learn from everybody that you possibly can. And, and you know, in other words, forget ego. I mean, I think the whole, one of the biggest problems is guys that have egos that get into design position. everything turns out to look like what they did, and rather work than develop in teams. So I think the, the whole secret is to develop a team around you when you've got a project, learn from everyone that's on your team to be a good sponge, and you and color outside the lines and believe in your crazy ideas those are my last words of wisdom <laughs>
1: And I guess before we let you go, you have some great stories as part of your book. It's kind of a cute story. And I'd also like to talk to you about your artwork because I feel your artwork, it truly is a unique, beautiful style. It's something that drives you, I mean, continuously. Does this drive you today? I mean, you're still sketching, drawing, painting, and that original drive that began when you were little. I mean, what is it like working on some of these beautiful artistic pieces that I feel sometimes get overlooked because you are a fantastic artist?
6: Well, they're go- I call them gods and goddesses that I learned from. My style was developed from different people that I fell madly in love with their artwork. And what I would do is steal a little piece of this and a little piece of that from the people that I really loved, and then that developed my style. And, of course, my real style is cartooning. So basically being a cartoonist, a lot of the work that I do is really based around cartoons. And uh it, it, it's a little more than cartooning. It's maybe it's another level of cartooning, but it still has a cartoon flair and style to it because if you really look at some of my work it looks like it's right out of comic strips. And if it's realistic. And then I also film then I fell in love with so many different styles and people. I fell in love with the Japanese uh style. So I did a whole series of paintings using Japanese color Japanese Uh, Patterns and shapes, and then I did another. Then see again. Let me back up here a little bit. I think the whole thing is that I became a theme designer. Meant that whenever I did something, it became a theme. So when I would ever do paintings, I always pick a theme and do a whole series of paintings on that particular theme, which was like an exercise. And so I think that that again is to challenge your own imagination. Think of something that's different and color outside the lines. (laughs)
1: In closing here, the one thing that I forgot to ask early on, as you stated, you were just doing your job. So I didn't realize that you were part of something of this kind of legacy, something special being passed on. You were just doing the job best to your ability. And that brings me to something that I wanted to bring up earlier on. And many times clips are shown on many shows from Disneyland DVDs, television archives, a history channel. And what is it like looking back at those clips being aired over and over again as this young Rolly Crump standing? next to Walt Disney for the World's Fair just blowing on this tower that is now immortalized in clips for TV for all the ages. Uh, what's it like seeing yourself all these years later continuously being played, you know, standing next to Walt?
6: I love it. I, I uh, The reason I love it is when you're on television with Walt, it was so goddamn comfortable. I mean, you know, he came come in and say, well, we're going to talk about this, we're going to talk about that, and uh, then we'll do it. There was no script given to us. There was always a script given to him, which he never followed. And so he made you feel so goddamn comfortable. It was incredible. I loved working with him. He was just, well, I'm shocked. I'm thinking, God, who is that young, handsome guy? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'm going to be 85 next week. So I know what it's like to look back at, at somebody that was 30 years old. It wasn't too bad looking kid. So no, I, I look back at it and I'm, and I'm thrilled I'm impressed and I'm, and I'm I'm excited to think that they still have that stuff available for people to see and we get Marie and I get stuff in the mail every week uh, of different pieces of artwork that I've done that they've copied somewhere and they send it to me and they want me to get put my autograph on it so I get thrilled with that so I enjoy, I you know i just, having a good time. I always have and I always will.
1: Well, it was our pleasure having you stop in and somebody with your legacy. We could sit here for hours talking and hearing fascinating things from you and you have been interviewed by some great, wonderful people so you've had great stories to share all around the Disney circuit and it was our pleasure having you stop on because being an artist myself and originally going to school for animation, it is such an inspiration to speak with you and I am sure that your legacy is going to live on for generations as many people continue to pass it on and I pass down these attractions Attractions, movies and many more to my children as well and i'm sure our listeners are doing the same and in closing i just would like to say thank you for all the wonderful gifts attractions and many things that you have touched upon over the years and you've given to us and thank you again for taking time and stopping in
6: it was my pleasure my pleasure i'm sorry i wasn't sitting in a chair in front of you so <laughs> we'll take it that way next time,
3: <laughs> oh, hey. Oh, hey. It's joke time. In the takey,
2: takey, 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 takey room In the takey, 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 takey room All the birds sing words and the flowers croon In the takey, 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 takey room Welcome to our tropical hideaway, you lucky people, you. If we weren't in the show starting right away, we'd think the audience. heads All together in the Tiki, 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 Tiki room. In the Tiki, 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 Tiki room. All the birds sing word and the flowers croon. In the
5: Tiki, 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 Tiki room. The bird of paradise is an elegant
2: bird. It likes to be seen and it loves to be heard Most little birdies will fly away but the ticky room, birds are here every day tiki room. in the ticky 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 room, All Night- the birds Night- sing words Night- and the flowers croon Night- mm-hmm. in, in the ticky 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 room. A the lowners ticky 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 In the ticky 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 room, All the birds sing
3: words and the flowers croon In the ticky 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 room. This is Suzanne Blakesley, the voice of Lady Tremaine, Maleficent, the Evil Queen and Hag, Cruella de Vil, and Mary Poppins, on Disney On Demand.
10: Hey there, D-heads! Paige here on our 101st episode of Disney On Demand. We've got some great music here this week on the Magical Music Review. To celebrate 101 shows, we are turning our eyes to 101 Dalmatians. Don't worry, I haven't forgotten our previous look at the 1961 animated classic from just a few weeks ago. And we aren't looking at the sequel. This time, we're looking at the live-action 1996 film. This adaption is a gem. Wonderful actors and our amazing four-legged friends pull off the story in style. The score that backs up our story was composed by Michael Kamen, whose works include Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, Frequency, The Three Musketeers, and Die Hard to name a few. With all of this said, we return to London to listen to the music of the 1996 film 101 Dalmatians. You know me D-heads, I'm a sucker for main titles, and the opening for 101 is no different. We have a great orchestration. We start the piece with piano and bells, bringing in an oboe and clarinet. Then the brass comes in, and the intensity starts to build. It reminds me of the opening to a live show overture. Once the brass starts to join in, more flourishes start. Then everyone's in, the violins, woodwinds, brass, percussion, the works, all playing together and ushering in the start of the film. After one final buildup, the dynamics diminish as we have a solo trumpet with soft accompaniment. As the trumpet diminuendos, we then bring in piano, bells, and the upper voices in flourishes. This signifies our scene change of Pongo waking up Roger. We find ourselves with a French horn solo followed by another trumpet solo. Then we have another scene change that comes into play, and the morning walk begins. The start to the scene is once again signified by the upper voices, with lower voices coming in to add to orchestration. Overall, I just find this piece to be lovely. It signifies the start to the film very well. I'll stop talking now so that you can enjoy it. story points of 101 is that Pongo and Purdy have puppies. The scene where the puppies arrive is one of the most important. The scene where the story shifts into a rescue happens when Horace and Jasper steal the puppies. On the soundtrack the two scenes are combined. Birth, Fifteen Puppies, The Heist is our next piece for today. The piece starts with what sounds like a fairly simple melody. We have a beautiful rich orchestration with violins, piano, brass, and woodwinds bringing the piece to life. You can close your eyes and just imagine a sweet scene unfolding. There's also a sense of something coming, something wonderful and exciting. When the strings and upper voices begin with the flourishes and raise the dynamics in the melody, you know we have arrived at something special. All of a sudden the intensity is increased and we switch gears again. Horace and Jasper have arrived. We are heavy on brass and timpani. The sweet melody of the birth is gone, replaced with one of mystery and danger, ending with sadness and despair. I can't really think of how else to describe this. I'll step away and let you listen in. See you in a bit. So there are typically three scenes in a film where my favorite pieces of score come from. One is the opening, which we've covered. The second usually revolves around a scene of conflict, check. And the third is the final scene. Home, One Big Happy Family is our final piece for this week. The piece is a fairly typical finale. I say this in the sense that from the first notes you can tell that we've reached the end of our story. There's a sense of closing. Almost as if you can picture the final lines of dialogue being read and can see the curtain call approaching in the program order. At this point, Pongo, Purdy, and the 99 Puppies have made their way back to London and are reunited with Roger, Anita, and Nanny. We again have beautiful orchestration from Mr. Kamen with every instrument present. The piece has a very simple ending. The entire orchestra cuts off before a solo woodwind comes in followed by a full ensemble chord to finish it. Take a listen and enjoy. With that, I must dash. I hope all of you have a great rest of your week, D heads. Remember, if you have any music suggestions, comments, or questions, you can get me at page at disradio.com or on DisRadio's DWire Walt Disney Discussion Facebook page. Thanks for tuning into the show this week. Until next time, see ya.
1: All right, all you d head, so I'm back once again, and I hope you enjoyed this week's show. It has been fantastic. We had a lot of great things on the horizon, and first and foremost, I want to extend that very special thank you once again to the one and only, the legend, Imagineer, Mr. Rolly Crump. Thank you once again for stopping in here and chatting with all of us here at the show. Your stories are fascinating and fantastic. You truly are a Disney icon. Thank you once again for stopping in here and making our 100th guest that special thank you, Roley, once again for stopping in. I'd also like to thank the D-Team because no show would be complete without the D-Team, so thank you to Nathan, Jason, and Paige all for stopping in here this week and adding your signature segments here at the show. You truly do make the show special. If you want to connect up with the D-Team, be sure to check out our official website at DizRadio.com. That's D-I-Z-Radio.com and connect up with the D-Team and right there, they will not bite. Just shoot them an email and start just chatting away with all of us here at the show. And most of all, I want to thank you, the D-Heads. Without you, they're would be no show you are the reason we are on show number 101 you're the reason that we bring this magic and memories from your lifetime of disney every single week with our special guests the d team and more so thank you the d heads you truly do make this happen and i am humbled to bring these little bits of magic to you every single week so thank you for tuning in now, all of you D heads, before I let you in as to who's going to be stopping in next week for show number one hundred and two, I do want to give you all the different ways you can stay connected here at the show. And first and foremost, you can always visit our official website at dizradio.com. That's d i z radio.com. There, you can find our full list of past shows, the complete archives, our latest news blogs, our lifetime of Disney player, and more right there on our official website at dizradio.com. That's d i z radio. Com. You can also connect up with us all over the social media outlets on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Disney On Demand. You can also friend us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash John Diz. That's J-O-N-D-I-Z. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest, and more. Just search Diz Radio. That's D-I-Z Radio or Disney Blue and that's B-L-U. And you can connect up with us all over and subscribe to our latest shows and Stitcher Radio and iTunes just by searching Disney On Demand or Diz Radio. And remember, you can find all these links and more on our official website at dizradio.com. So all of you D-heads, with that out of the way, I'm just kind of keeping things rolling here this week. Next week, show number 102. We're going to take a trip back. That's something special for all of you adults and something for all of you new d heads out there as well because you may think back to those days of boy meets world and now with girl meets world and next week for show number 102 we have a very special guest as we have none other than sabrina carpenter maya on girl meets world's mother cheryl Texera, stopping in here next week now cheryl's been on a variety of different things currently she plays sean hunters Possible love interest on Girl Meets World, as well as Maya's Mother. She's also been on It's Sunny in Philadelphia and many other things. So Cheryl's going to stop in and chat with us, and I'm sure she has some great stories to tell. So all of you D-heads, with that said, I'm going to wrap it up for this week. Our 100th guest here at the show. How monumental is that? And Disney legend at that with Mr. Rolly Crump. So all of you D-heads, as I always say, take that time, slow down, Never neglect family for business. And until next week, I will catch you online and Just all over make the circuits.
5: Just make You're a tiny little seed. A tiny little seed that's reaching up to meet your need. With the right amount of faith and the right amount of earth. You'll grow to see the sunshine on your day of birth. Let's, Let's listen, listen to, to the land
4: we all love. Nature's plan
5: will shine upon. Listen to the land, listen to the land Let's listen to the land, we all
4: love
5: Nature's plan will shine upon. Listen to the land, listen to the land When springtime comes, how can you tell? The air is always filled with orange blossom smell Come summertime, the warmest sunshine And the world is full of flowers and good melon rinds Let's listen listen
4: to the land land. we all love
5: Nature's Nature's plan will shine above Listen to to the land, land. listen to 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 the land Let's listen listen to the
4: land land. we all love
5: Nature's Nature's plan will shine above Listen Listen to the land, listen to the land When autumn falls it's a harvest show With north winds blowing all the seeds that it must sow Come winter time, The rain must fall Till once again the new year and the springtime call Let's, Let's listen, listen to, to the, the land, land we all love Nature's, nature's plan will shine upon. Listen to, to the land, land listen, listen to the land Let's listen, listen to the land we all love, nature's plan will shine above, listen to the land, listen to the land. The seasons come and the seasons go, nature knows everything that it must know, the earth and man can be good friends. Let's listen so our harvest time will never end Let's listen to the land we all love Nature's plan will shine above Listen to the land, listen to the land Let's listen to the land we all love Nature's plan will shine above Listen to the land, listen to the land Just make believe You're a tiny little sea